You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, I want to invite you now, as, as is our custom, to open the Bible with me. We're going to be in the 69th Psalm. And so I've been walking through the book of the, this massive book of the Bible, which in many ways isn't a book at all. It's a, it's a list or a compilation of 150 books or psalms, songs, poems, and prayers. Uh, you'll find in the middle of the Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, please make your, make your way to You'll see a paperback Bible in the basket of the chair in front of you. Make that our gift, even. Uh, but if you don't have a, a device that will get you there, we want to make that available to you and to whomever you know who might not own a Bible. Uh, and so right in the middle, don't be afraid of the table, con- table of contents. Right in the middle of the Bible, you'll find the Psalms. There's 150 of them. And we're going to be in the 69th. And so this will be, in many ways, kind of a follow-up to the 35th Psalm that we were in last week. And I'll read all of it to, to you as, a, as, like we've been saying, as a, a prayer, as a song even that might be sung. And you'll even see what would have been the first verse in, in most of the Psalms is actually we see as a caption to the choir master according to lilies that would have been the tune and of David that is of this prominent king of this powerful and amazing king in the most in the most uh, in the most prosperous time in the history of God's people that is this people of Israel and so for us that means to the choir master that means it's something together we're meant to be rehearsing or or in, in this sense contemplating ruminating and meditating upon but it's also it's also of David so every time we see the story of the Old Testament especially kind of these what we call them types that is a picture of, of what we find for the rest of the Bible, like David, this great and wonderful king. And, and as you read more about him, and I, I encourage you to do that in First and Second Samuel, two, two books of the Old Testament, you'll find that he's been a prominent, powerful, even very impressive as a warrior, but he's known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. So we're going to read one of his sweet psalms today. But you'll also find in his story that he is deeply corrupt, deeply sinful, and flawed in powerful ways. And so in that sense, we, we talk about David and other powerful figures of the Old Testament, like we would talk when we say a type, we, we talk about them like an appetizer, right? Uh, an appetizer that, that in the hands of a chef is meant to actually give you just enough to make you deeply unsatisfied and make you hungry for more. Now, in America, we don't do the appetizers that way. Appetizers for us are like, you know, bread, endless bread or breadsticks or chips and salsa, my personal favorite, at which point you eat so much of it that you're not hungry anymore. Like, I don't, why would I even order anything at this point, right? That's not helpful. But imagine a, a kind of a Michelin star restaurant, a chef giving you just enough of what, what could be to come. And that for us is what David is. David is this is going to invite you and I to meditate on the language of the, of the life of faith that we've been seeing in, in and throughout the entirety of the Psalms. And yet you're going to find that there's this something deeply dissatisfying about David. You're going to think, wow, what a great king, but man, I wish there was more. And for us, that is Jesus. So we're invited to begin to hear the, the prayer book of not, only, of not only David, but we'll even find later Jesus. And it's a, it's a diary of mourning. It's a, a deep and personal and solemn account of suffering and sorrow. So it's going to take a few minutes for us to read, but let's walk through it together beginning in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is Parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. 
More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate. And the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my first thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him. 
the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Life is full of ups and downs. I know some of you might say, life, you know, today is full of ups and downs, right? But life is full of ups and downs, highs and lows, moments of joy and thanksgiving, and then moments of sorrow and despair. Now, we're usually surprised by both, but we shouldn't be so surprised. And, and for those of us who have been meditating on Scripture here, and we begin to hear the story of God interacting with his people, we, we actually begin to consider the possibility that those ups and downs are a part of a divinely inspired story. And this is true. Whether you're in this room this morning as, as a believer in Jesus, wanting to know and follow him more closely, but maybe you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't you wouldn't call yourself that. Or maybe you're not sure. Maybe, maybe right now you're wondering about that. And, and I want to say this is true for both of us, that life is full of ups and downs. And so sometimes what may appear to be a positive upturn in life, sometimes in reality and in the grand scheme of God's plan, is the beginning or the experience of a downturn of judgment. And... Additionally, what appears for many of us to be a downturn in our own life is actually the beginning of an upturn to experiencing a renewal of God's presence and blessing. And those ups and downs happen in ironic patterns. Irony, I say that, is simply saying or, or doing something that, that implies the opposite. That is, implies what maybe you wouldn't expect, or, or maybe something that kind of is, is under the surface, or, or what it seems like intention or contradiction to what you're saying. Now, be clear, there's a difference between irony and sarcasm. Uh, if someone is just being rude and, and biting, that's not ironic, that's sarcasm. It's a whole other category, right? That's satire, something different. Irony, though, is when you are in this sense, saying something and implying its opposite. And the story, and we see here especially in Psalm 69, the story of God's work in his people is full of ups and downs. And the story of those downs sometimes imply or foreshadow a turn about an up or a, a prosperity that's on the way, a blessing that is to come, while at the same time, experience of blessing sometimes kind of implies that something is going to turn. This is the kind of irony, the radical reversals. One commentarian describes this in the scripture as the redemptive reversals. They're the redemptive reversals of what you would expect. And so in this psalm, we see a lament, a personal prayer of experiencing sorrow and, 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 and deep sadness. But we also see uh, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, an imprecation. That is, did you hear? He calls out to God for, for God to start bringing those kinds of punishments, turn the tables, if you will, on those who unfairly persecute me. 
and do these things in such a way that at the end he will experience thanksgiving. And at the very, very end, did you catch that? There's a, a psalm, like a corporate praise. The nations are going to praise you. All of creation is going to see this reversal. All of creation is going to see what you're doing here and how you've turned the tables. And they're going to rejoice. So, I think what we find here are some things that we learn from David, but we also see some powerful things about Jesus. Where do I get this? Well, last week, we, we found a phrase there in the 35th Psalm, and I ended on John chapter 15. That same phrase, being quoted in John 15, is found right here in, psalm, in the 69th Psalm. But before we go there, just look for a moment at the, at the broad range of New Testament voices that quote this psalm. In fact, this psalm is quoted by more in more um, places in the New Testament than any other psalm other than the 22nd psalm, which Jesus quotes from the cross. So just even look briefly at, at what we saw last week. We'll, we'll begin here where we ended last week, that John, uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying to his, to his disciples that if the world hates you, just know it hated me first. Don't be surprised. No servant is above his master. So if they hated you, they're going to, excuse me, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. But don't worry. He says, ultimately, they're alienated from the Father. And this is so that, as you see here, verse 25, but the word that, uh, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Did you hear that phrase? Hated without cause. We saw that last week. And we see it even here in verse 4. Do you see that? More in number than the hairs of my head are those who what? Hate me without cause. So remember I told you that the Psalms create these poetic containers. These beautiful poetic containers for how we experience life. And how we experience God's presence and renewal in the middle of it. And in this sense there's a reference here. That David is experiencing something we're not sure about. But there's actually evidently more than one reference. We'll describe it over this week and the next couple of weeks maybe as a type and an anti-type. This psalm isn't just in reference to David. Evidently, Jesus says here, this psalm is in reference to him. The suffering and sorrow isn't just something that David endured. Oh no, he's an appetizer for a greater king. In this case, a greater servant who experienced a greater suffering. Jesus is, I want you to see here, ultimately saying that the Bible can be trusted as a theologically unified document, as historical roots, and as it's unfolding, ultimately it's revealing something about the character of God who has come to be with us and for us in Jesus. And it's narrating God's keeping of His promise, that is, we'll say, His, his covenantal work that we saw last week, the treaty, if you will, that now Jesus is, is bringing about for us where Jesus absorbs the hate that the psalmist in the 69th and the 35th psalm wants to avoid so that you and I will ultimately avoid it because of him. So it's a composite of a prayer, lament, and imprecation, and even thanksgiving and a hymn. So I want you to see what we can learn in this psalm as a reference about David, but also a reference about Jesus, because Jesus tells us that this is about him. But just look briefly. We'll spend most of our time this morning on just the first 12 verses. We'll try to spend uh, the next week or two in the remainder of the psalm. I, I, I apologize, side note here, last time, I, I, I should have done that last week with the 35th psalm, but sometimes I try to tell you every good thing that's in the whole Bible in just one sitting, 
And that's, on one hand, just arrogant that I would know it or to be able to communicate it, uh, but also just it, it, arrogant in that that's, just not, that's me not trusting the Holy Spirit to do the work in this word. So if I ever go long and seem to go like, man, he's really, really trying to get it all in today, just, man, he's, he's struggling to trust the Holy Spirit. We're going to do a better job of that today. Should have made that into two or three, maybe five sermons, no, sermons last week. But here we go. We're going to try to learn from our mistakes, but maybe not. So the first 12 verses is where we're going to spend most of our time. And we see how it refers to David, uh, the language of faith that we can learn, but also ultimately about how this is a reference to Jesus. Because look, these are the verses that we even just see in those first 12. The first part of chapter 9 is quoted in John chapter 2, when Jesus walks in and flips the tables inside the temple in Jerusalem and begins to fashion for himself a weapon. Ultimately, it says, his disciples remembered that it was written. And did you, did you hear what the disciples remembered was written? Zeal for your house will consume me, right out of this psalm. The second half of, of verse 9, we find quoted in Romans chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fall, fell on me. And we'll walk through each of those things in just a moment, but, but as you'll see kind of a preview of next week, verse 21 in the 69th Psalm is quoted by all four Gospels. Verses 22 and 23 show up in Romans chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. And then the 25th verse of the 69th Psalm is quoted in the first chapter of Acts. So think of it, the New Testament in many ways is built upon or at least prominent texts in the New Testament that tell us about who Jesus is and what the church is to be as a result of what Jesus has done thinks this psalm is really important and ultimately teaches us something about Jesus. So what we find here is a petition for salvation from David, but ultimately a picture of something we learn about Jesus. So look. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. This, this language of suffering and despair is, is, is the language of literally of death. Remember, it's a poetic container. It's a metaphor. D David isn't actually like learning how to swim here. This isn't a psalm that he wrote when he fell out of a boat, right? Although, literally, this would be a good psalm to recite should you be in that situation. But, but this is a metaphor, right? He's describing waters have come up to his neck. He has sunk down. He has lowered himself down into deep mire. And then there's no foothold. You, you get the picture of the, the muddy bottom of a, of a cistern or well, or the muddy bottom of a river or a lake. But then he says something else. The flood sweeps over me. That that language of having come into deep waters and the flood sweeping over me, the depths is the metaphorical language we find throughout the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament for the depths, or the depths of death. That is the depths of Sheol, the depths of the grave, that the depths of death have started to, to come over me. So he's saying that I am sinking down, I've been lowered down into the depths. And I've been crying out for help so much. Did you get this? He, his throat is parched and his eyes are dim. He's tired of waiting for help from God. Not only that, but he is unfairly hated. He experiences distress. He says that greater than the number of the hairs of my head. Again, a metaphor. He doesn't actually know this. We find 
Jesus kind of turns this on his head. We saw in the Gospel of Matthew, God knows the hairs, the number of hairs on our head. But he's saying, more than the hairs that I, can, I, can po- I couldn't possibly number, that's how many people hate me without cause. And they're mighty. And they want me to restore something I didn't actually steal, these falsely, falsely accused. And yet at the same time, he stops in verse 5 and says, however, God, you know all things. You know their accusations. You know they're false. But you also know me. You know my own fooly, that is fo- or fo- folly, which is foolishness. So just look at some principles we find here from David that I believe give us, in the walk of faith, healthy language. One, distress and suffering are, uh, they're opportunities they're an opportunity to connect with God. Notice in verse 5, and, and, and for the remainder, he is crying out, just like at the very beginning, for God to save him. Now, I say that because most of the time when we experience suffering, our first response, and the Psalms say this is natural, this is right, this is, this is how you should experience suffering. You feel it as an alienation from God. God, where were you? God, how long? God, did you, don't you see this? And yet we're invited to cry that out to God. And distress and suffering are an opportunity to do just that. So this is going to sound profound. Uh, for some of you in this moment, maybe right this morning, you're experiencing a great deal of distress and suffering. You might not even hear what I'm saying, right? It's like all I hear is distress and suffering. But, but maybe for the rest of us, maybe, maybe this morning you're not experiencing a ton of distress. Well, here's, think of this as a preparation for the day that you do. So that when, not if, when distress and suffering comes, you'll see it as, okay, this is a time where I'm going to experience, remember, an ironic, I'll have an ironic experience of God's presence and suffering. There's something I'm meant to experience here. God has not abandoned me in this. Secondly, I think this little passage, this section of this psalm, teaches us that distress and suffering can cause us to feel alienated from one another. Now, he very selflessly has an eye to how his experience of suffering could negatively affect others. Verse 6, let not those who put hope in you be put to shame through me. That is, God, protect those people who might lose heart by the way that they see me. Right? They might be crying out the same thing. God, if you're so good, why would you let that happen to fill in the blank? And he's saying, don't let others see me and lose faith on account of my experience. And he goes on to talk how he's experienced reproach and alienation. Distress and suffering can cause us to feel alienation or alienated from one another. Do you see at the very end? I have become a reproach for those people, and is I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Again, same thing, when you, fear, when you experience deep suffering and distress, the natural inclination is to turn inward, right? To push yourself away from people, to distance yourself from close relationships. And, and, and man, you might have been on both sides of this. Have you, ever had, have you ever been watching someone who's gone through deep sorrow and suffering And in the middle of that, they turn against you. And they are, instead of like a brother, they are strangers. Recognize the opportunity here to call out to God, but recognize also one of the things that I believe the enemy wants to do in suffering is to make you feel like you're all alone. It's to make you feel as though no one's with you. 
right? In many ways, that's, that's kind of the cry of our culture, right? No one can know you. No one could be you. No one, no one could plumb the depths of you. And while there's a little bit of truth of that, that's because you simply bear the marks and image of God. It's not necessarily because you're special. It's because God is special and he makes beautiful things. But, but the enemy can twist that and turn it into like, no one knows how bad I feel. No one knows what it's like to be me. And whether you realize it or not, Whenever you do that and say that, when you embrace it, when that like sinks into the depths of your soul, the people around you who are family, who love you and care for you, did you hear that? Become strangers. So practically in the life of faith, when we experience the distress and suffering, we know, we reckon, hey, hey, I get it. You might need some space. I can't talk about this right now. I can just weep. And in the life of faith, maybe that's gracious. Okay, hey, I'm here for you. But recognize that that can turn to avoidance and even alienation. Lastly, distress and suffering ought to cause us to search our own conscience. Did you see verse 5? He's crying out to God. We saw this in the 35th Psalm. He's crying out to God. The things that are being litigated against me, right? the things I'm being accused of, I did not do. Now notice, he's not saying I'm perfectly innocent. I've always been innocent. Notice, He's saying, I'm not innocent of that. The current thing I am, I am experiencing, this kind of consequence I'm experiencing, I did not do this. I did not do what they said I did, specifically here in verse 4. I didn't steal that. I didn't take that. I didn't, I didn't do the thing that they're accusing me of doing. But even in distress and suffering, look how he models. He says, but also, God, you know my folly, the wrongs that I have done. I may not have done that thing. God, deliver me. Not as one who's perfectly innocent, but God, deliver me because you know, you actually know the things that I have done. So think of distress and suffering as as an invitation to begin to reflect on and experience the weight of sin in our own conscience. You're right. Maybe the awful things that have happened to you, you don't deserve. That may absolutely be true. And yet the enemy can use that as, as a way to kind of, in the depths of your soul, create a self-righteousness and even, if you're not careful, a self-pity that sounds, it comes across like even in the depths of your own heart, but even to other people, like you don't deserve any suffering. And so think of the language of faith here that David gives us. Is even though you may be suffering in a way that you, you didn't deserve, that's, that might absolutely be true. You are not perfectly righteous. And so this is a a tension that we have to weigh in the life of faith. On one hand, we don't blame people who are victims of suffering. Remember, remember this is is the confounding uh, work of Jesus. Like A man was uh, was born with a malady, and they first came to Jesus, and they tried to do this very thing, right? Who sinned? That is, who brought this on him, him or his father? And Jesus is like, you don't get it. Ultimately, this man experiences what he experienced to bring glory to me. And so the same thing is true. That we regularly want to kind of blame or shame when we see brokenness or suffering. And so we want to blame the victim sometimes, or we want to say, like, no, this person is so innocent that we need to, like, that victimhood becomes an identity and, and even a badge of honor. And, and notice, in the life of faith, neither of those is really true. There's only one person in the history of the world, there's only one perfectly innocent person who was persecuted 
There's only one person who was unfairly betrayed. Every other bad thing that's happened in the world has happened to someone who is sinful. There's only one time where someone was perfectly, uh, perfectly honest and righteous and was betrayed and suffered for it, and that was Jesus. The rest of us, even though we may not deserve the thing that happened, are still sinners who, de- who deserve the punishment and alienation from God and yet receive grace in spite of it. So David gives us language for this. But ultimately, this isn't about David. All of those things that I just said ultimately are pointing to, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, something else is going on. And that is this. Jesus, this language of this psalm helps us to see, sunk into the depths as a servant. Now you'll see in verse 17 that language of servanthood. Hide not your face from your servant. Do you see that? And so it's as if he's saying, I've undergone these awful things. I've sunk down into the depths, right? The depths being like, I've sunk down into the very experience of death as a servant. And friend, that's exactly what servants do. This theme that we find in the book of Isaiah as well of the suffering servant, I believe gives us a picture for what you and I are invited to celebrate and and be comforted with in Jesus. And while the distress and suffering we may experience can be an opportunity for us to experience God's renewing and healing presence, it can sometimes be a temptation to be alienated from others, and it can even, at times, cause us to to reflect and search search our own conscience. Ultimately, this is a way that points to something that Jesus, that's greater. This exhausted and urgent cry is ultimately pointing us to a way that Jesus experienced an exhausted and urgent cry out to God. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who is estranged and disgraced from his very brothers, the people who were supposed to be by his side. Jesus ultimately experienced an opposition, a great shame that was heaped on him to die naked, alone, and betrayed on an old rugged cross. And yet Jesus also is the one who has a passion and fervor for the Lord's house and his very presence. And so the very pattern we see of suffering and and deliverance that David is crying out is ultimately something that Jesus embodies and perfects. And so this prayer diary is also a a prayer diary of Jesus, and therefore true of, if this is a story about a servant who sunk into the depths that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus, then it's true of Jesus, and therefore true of us who have been united to Jesus by faith. Jesus sunk into the depths as a servant, and those of us who are in Christ will too. Think of it this way, Mark 10, 45 For even the Son of Man, Jesus says, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The very purpose of Jesus isn't to be like an earthly leader or king or figure. In fact, the story, the very essence of the story of Jesus, the story that we celebrate every Christmas at the Incarnation, is in many ways a story, if it were not for the resurrection, a story of the greatest tragedy that has ever existed. The perfect and righteous God of the universe empties and lowers himself, not just, as Philippians 2 tells us, to become human. I mean, think about that. Lower, the, the, the creator of the universe became a volatile, unborn baby, and became an infant that needed his diapers changed. 
That confounds the imagination. The creator of the universe crying out and needing help. But that wasn't it. It wasn't just that the creator of the universe entered into that creation and took the form of the, the lowest life form, something that is organic and could, could come and go and die. We find the Bible tells us elsewhere like grass. But he took a secondary, kind of a, uh, an exponentially greater lowliness. Philippians 2 tells us he didn't just lower himself to become a human. He could have done that and become a, a king or a, a, a powerful and famous person. He lowered himself to the point of a servant, even unto death. Oh, like, oh, like death in a ripe old age with your grandkids around you? Oh, no. The death on an old rugged cross, abandoned, betrayed. The story of, of Jesus entering in as the, the sinking, lowering servant who goes to the depths is, is in many ways the saddest and the most tragic story that's ever been told. How the greatest being in the universe becomes of no account. The people who should have been there abandoned him and left him for dead. He had no inheritance to pass on. He had no spouse, no family, nothing. And what he did have, his very garments, were raffled off to the people who killed him. And yet this is the picture of the glory of God. See how this psalm invites us to see what Jesus has done, that he has entered into creation and taken a low position he has done something powerful. And, and here's the thing. That's a picture for us who now have faith in him. That's also true of us. Because Jesus has sunk to the lowest, he has sunk into the depths, that no longer is a threat for you or me. And you can hear it throughout the rest of this psalm and even other psalms like the one we saw last week. Being hated and betrayed and abandoned Right? Being insulted, falsely accused, isn't the worst thing that could happen. And because we know that that is a picture of God's glory in the world, to be sinking down into the depths, then we begin to realize that we're, when we experience the sinking and the depths, we realize we're a part of something greater. We're imaging the character of God. There's a lowering an existential lowering that no longer grips us because of Christ. Look, this is a radical reversal. In many ways, this is an indictment on the world and, and the culture's view of greatness, is it not? Right, uh, I, I quote this regularly. It's, it's attributed to lots of people, but I think probably most predictably, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor of, of 10th Presbyterian in, in Philadelphia, but he was made famous because he was one of the first uh, first pastors who was broadcasted on the radio at the beginning of the 20th century. And you, you can find him on the internet, you can find, but one of the, his, his kind of quotes, it's usually attributed to him, who knows nothing new under the sun, who knew really say, who, knew who really say it, who said it, um, I say it now, if you've never heard it before, I made it up, right? <laughs> he says, the way to go up is down, and the way to go down is up. Jesus says that the way to, if you really want to Preserve and keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you try as hard as you can to save your life, that's when you actually will lose it. And the one who loses that life gives it up 
on account of me experiences the greatest glory you can imagine. The way up is down. This psalm and, and the story of Jesus confounds our, our current understanding of greatness, does it not? And as Christians, it frees you and me from chasing it. You don't have to chase the world's picture of grandeur, fame, and prosperity. In many ways, if you think about it, our appetite for those things have been so deeply satisfied in Jesus that those things are no longer tempting for us. We see how they'll ultimately sour for us. And so, friend, have you begun to experience this? Has this changed the way you see who is great? I mean, some of you might already know this. Some of the greatest people in your life and mine are the people who made great sacrifices on our behalf, aren't they? They're the people who, like, underwent great sacrifice, and we think, man, that's amazing. And while we might be entertained by or maybe benefit some people who, who rise to fame and notoriety and influence because of narcissism or, or just kind of a, a self-aggrandizement. I mean, we may benefit from them now and again, but ultimately they're sour on our mouth because we know that, that that person who maybe who has great influence and power will sell us off the minute they get a chance. Because you know the greatest people in your life are the people who sacrifice greatly for you. It's an affront here to the world's picture of greatness. Maybe a more modern touch a quote from a band I love, Need to Breathe. What do you kids want to hear about now? I found the bottom from the top somehow. And the greatest sorrows, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, don't come from not getting what you want. They come from getting everything you want and realizing they don't satisfy you. There is a deep glory and power of sinking into the depths here that Jesus is lamenting. There was a great, amazing thing we experience here that Jesus sunk into a pit to serve. And he's great. And 2,000 years later, I mean, think about it. 3,000 years ago, this was written. 2,000 years ago, Jesus did this. And we're still talking about him in Sioux Falls, South Dakota because it still confounds us, right? He did what? There's a second thing. Jesus sunk into the depths as a servant, but Jesus was unfairly hated as one who is set apart. This is what, this is what holiness naturally does. Now, I'm very careful when I use the word persecuted because many American Christians have a persecution complex. I apologize. And they would define persecution in a way that the Bible never does, that the history of Christianity never does, and globally Christians never do. My goal even then, when I think about, as we've been walking through the Psalms this summer, I've been like, how can we talk about what God is doing in the Psalms here and, and lament and despair and comfort and thanksgiving and the ways that maybe, what if our church was in Ukraine right now? What if Connection Church was gathering in some place in Ukraine? Right? What hope would we have then? What if we were in Sri Lanka? Right? What if we were in Myanmar and Kenya? Places right now, it is dangerous, it is dangerous to be a Christian. In many ways, it's dangerous to be anyone in some of those places, but especially a Christian, because living a life that's set apart, especially as a Christian, brings about a certain kind of hatred. Now, again, I'll be very careful. Maybe some of you actually have been disowned because you're a Christian, uh, but, but I'd be careful how you approach this. I want to do this to do so humbly. I can introduce you to, to some friends I got to meet over a decade ago, got to meet uh, pastors and 
church leaders and church planters in eastern India and western Nepal, and, and they, they share with or just, hey, tell me how you, you know, how you came to faith. Tell me your story of grace. And, and multiple people told us how they got to attend their own funeral because when they became a Christian, their family, literally, their family threw a funeral. They had a funeral because now that this person was a Christian, they were dead to them. So I'm careful when I say persecuted. However, there is something here. When you live a life that's set apart, there's something about pledging complete and total allegiance to Jesus as the suffering servant that makes people uncomfortable. It's because they can't own you. Some of you, maybe, maybe you don't remember some of this, but like, uh, like many, many times being a public Christian in politics, for example, like people were worried like, well, is this person going to actually do what's best for the country or they're going to follow Jesus, right? As if it was going to be different. And so, and so, man, this is, this is scary for us, but, but I can give you examples of this. I could tell you about a friend of mine who was a coach, and because he refused to berate and demean some of the players under his care, the rest of the coaches couldn't stand him. They couldn't trust him, so he lost his job. I could tell you some, about some of my friends in finance. How because they, they chose not to cut certain corners, their co-workers felt like they couldn't trust them. Well, if you're not going to do this, well, you know, then that kind of puts us all at risk. Do you hear it? When you're, the per- right? when you're the person at the party in which everyone's getting drunk and you're the sober one, everyone's kind of suspicious of you. Right? When, when everyone around you is doing a certain thing and you're saying, hey, I mean, just think about this, like... The world hates this thought, like if someone were to tell you this, I can't do that because I follow Jesus. Notice that's a, how powerful that is as an indictment. Because you're like, are you saying you're better than me, right? So notice Jesus was unfairly hated as one who was set apart. His very presence, his commitment to following the Lord and embodying the presence of the Father made people hate him. They didn't know what to do with him. And so, friend, in many ways, people won't know what to do with you. They hated him, they'll hate you. Now, again, kind of two, there's two sides of this I'll use as a litmus test before we move on. If you're never hated, if no one around you hates you because of the cause of Christ, I'd argue that that you probably aren't living the life of a, of a servant. Right? But if you're only hated, because the topic, whenever the topic of Christianity comes up, you're probably also not living the life of a servant. The life of a servant experiences reproach, but also as a servant benefits those around him. So some of you are like, yeah, everyone hates me. Like, that's... Again, unless, you, unless you're in a, like... Unless you live, this is a Western thing to say, but unless you live like in Myanmar right now or somewhere Sri Lanka, you're probably just a jerk. Everyone hates you because you are unloving. No one likes you. Repent. Be more like Jesus. But on the other hand, if you're like, no one hates me. In fact, I go to great lengths so that everyone would love me. I'd say, hey, same thing. You've probably sold yourself to something. And Jesus was unfairly hated because he lived a life that was set apart. It didn't fit. And in many ways, neither will you and I when we take the name of Jesus. Jesus had a zeal for the Father's presence. Do you hear that quote? This is the one that shows up in in the Gospel of John. This prayer evidently is about Jesus, he says in verse 9, for your zeal 
for zeal for your house has consumed me. I won't say much about this, but like this is a picture of God valuing or of Jesus valuing the Father's presence. And, and we see this in Jesus enters into, into Jerusalem and kind of announces his presence by going to the temple where, where the money changers had started to like started to kind of like swindle the people, the, the outsiders who would come into the Gentile courts to sacrifice so that they would be made pure and right before God. And Jesus comes in and sees them taking advantage of them selling things at a high rate, but also like exchanging money at a high rate, kind of give them a double whammy. Jesus walks in, flips the tables, and says, you've turned my father's house into a house, a den of thieves. He's irate about it. But think of it this way. Jesus, in this sense, gives us a picture of zeal for the father's presence. After all, as we saw when we walked through the gospel of John, you can imagine the people around him you can imagine the, the, the people, the money changers, and, and you can even imagine the outsiders who traveled a long way to, to be made right before God. You can imagine the, the religious elite. You, you can imagine all of them after Jesus did away with all of the, all of the sacrifices and all of the ways to exchange, flipped the tables. You can imagine all of them asking them, well, how's the outsider going to be made right before God? You can imagine Jesus going like, hmm, hmm. That's a question, isn't it? Jesus took the form of a servant, but had zeal for the Father's presence. But it isn't just that Jesus was a servant, an example, one who was betrayed. It's that Jesus was also a replacement. Jesus bore the reproach of others as their replacement. Did you hear that? A long, a long reflection beginning in verse 7. For it is for your sake, he's speaking to God now, that I have borne reproach, Right? David was saying, well, I've just, been a faithful, I've just been a faithful servant, and this is why people don't like me, but you can begin to see Jesus' ability to pray this prayer. Is, I, I am bearing something that is not rightly mine. It's for your sake that I've borne reproach. Become a stranger, zeal for your houses, consume me. But then listen to this, and the reproaches of those who reproach you the God-haters, the people who turned on God, the punishment or reproach that they deserve, it says, has fallen on me. Jesus sunk in as a servant, but he also sunk to the depths as a replacement. We describe it as a substitute. Jesus did something for us, for others. He has borne the reproach that others deserved. Those who reproach you, that is God, think us. When we look at God and his goodness and we say, I want my own way, right? I want to do things my way. I want to be my own God. I don't want to, I want to, live, a, I don't want to live a holy life. I just want to do whatever I want. I want to live for myself, for my own joy. And we turn and reproach in that sense, the character and nature of a holy God. And in this psalm, we see a meditation that Jesus takes on himself. That the reproach or punishment that you and I deserve for doing that, Jesus says, is falling on me. Jesus is doing something. He lowers himself so that now we're free to lower ourselves. But not only that, he takes our place, bears the reproach, the reproach that you and I deserve to give us something we could never accomplish he sunk into the depths as a servant. He was hated without cause. He had a zeal for the Father's presence. And now also, more than any of those things, he has taken our reproach. 
The radical reversal is that the perfect and righteous, right? Remember the highs and lows? The perfect and righteous Son of God, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who deserved blessing and prosperity, willingly took all the suffering and reproach that you and I deserve. He did it for you and for me. And that for us is a source of joy and transformation. So friend, I want to invite you. Can you say that? Can you say, Jesus took my place for my sin? Are you able to lower yourself? Because after all, like, one of the first acts of becoming a Christian that we invite one another into is the act of repentance. Do you find yourself saying, well, I'm not that bad? I mean, have you seen so-and-so? They're bad. Right? If you need an evil archetype, do you always pick Hitler or do sometimes you pick yourself? Because the act of repentance is a, is a willing lowering, a sinking. I'm, I'm waste, I'm nothing. I'm a worm. If God doesn't save me, if God doesn't heal me, if God doesn't take the punishment I deserve, I'm without hope. And something amazing happens. It's amazing. You're free. In that moment, you think you've lost all the dignity that you could muster. You receive a glory and praise from the Father you couldn't imagine. You lose your life and you actually find it. You begin to lose your need for control because you begin to get another kind of security. You begin, you begin to lose your need for approval because you receive a greater acceptance. You begin to lose your need for significance because your life takes on a deeper meaning. You lose your need for attention because you receive a deeper acknowledgement and comfort from God. You begin to sink. You begin to experience these kinds of things because you know that there's a deep joy and glory that is to be found in them. And the radical reversal is that in sinking and bearing, or like admitting what's true here, is the path to joy and hope. It's a path to joy and hope. Here's the last radical reversal. We'll end on it. He says, When I made sackcloth my clothing, because he was fasting in verse 10, think of it, his, his faithful living of fasting, his living of self-sacrifice as a servant, caused him to be ridiculed. And here's the last radical reversal. Did you hear the last verse of that section? I am the talk of those who sit in the gate. Now, normally, that, 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 that little metaphor has two meanings. Sometimes it's spoken of as like elders, the leaders and wise people who would sit at the gate, but also it's referred to the outsiders, the losers, right? Think 2 Kings chapter 6, the lepers, those who are not welcome inside. That's what he's talking about here. I'm the talk of those who sit at the gate, who are, like, who are sit, who sit in the gate, who are, are outsiders, and even the drunkards, right? Think of the sinners, the people who are living lives that, that most people would condemn. They're making no use of themselves. And what are they doing? Even they're making songs about me. Do you, do you hear the last radical reversal of Jesus sinking to the depths as a servant to be our substitute and replacement? Jesus is the cause for celebration for the outsider. Did you, did you see the radical reversal? The people who are outcasts, and, and even because of, their own, like because of their own decisions, right? The awful things they had done to where they're not welcome. Notice, notice, they're the ones who sing. They're the ones who are celebrating. And the ironic and powerful reversal that we see here is that those 
who are, who are in many, many ways honest about their own demise and know that they don't belong are the ones when this radical reversal takes place, when this servant steps in to the very depths and takes the place of the lost and the outsider, then what's their response? Singing. You get a picture there, drunkard singing, right? Incoherent singing. Can you hear the echoes of the first few chapters of Acts as the Holy Spirit falls on these people? And what do the outsiders think? Or the people outside of that, they, they go like, these people are drunk and make no sense. And what's their testimony? Oh, no. You don't understand. You don't understand the incoherent and inexpressible joy that comes out when you know that as an outsider, as a loser, as an outcast, you are welcomed by one who has suffered and taken your place. Jesus is the cause for celebration for outsiders. Jesus is the cause for celebration for you and for me, that we have received grace. He was scorned, even though he deserved praise. He received disgrace when he deserved worship and adoration. He experienced shame, even though he deserved to be exalted. His heart was broken when ultimately he deserved joy. He was left helpless when he deserved a throne and authority. He was given no sympathy, even as he was saving those who wouldn't give it. He was uncomforted while he was fulfilling the promise to bear the sin of the world. We'll see this next week. They, they put vinegar in his wine while he bled for their sins. Are you astonished? Are you astonished at the radical reversal of the one who sunk from the highest of heights to take the form of a lowly servant and suffer in our place so that you and I would experience joy unthinkable, so that the very depths of our sin and despair might actually be the turn to deep joy and celebration, inexpressible, even incoherent joy? I want to invite you now as we pray, we're going to respond in two ways. The first is we're going to pray together. I want to invite you maybe where you are to, to begin to consider the possibility that the greatness of Jesus that we celebrate is countered to what you're used to. And maybe for the first time even you turn to him, cry out to him so that you can with joy say he took my place. And then in a moment we're going to stand together and we're going to sing about the plight of this lowly servant who took our sorrows and bore them for us. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for what you've done for me. Thank you for what you've done for those who would repent and believe in you. Thank you for the joy you offer to those of us who have experienced something that we could never have accomplished on our own. I pray that for those of us that maybe that sounds new and maybe that sounds foreign and alien to us, would you even now begin to open our hearts and eyes? Let us wonder at it. Let us begin to contemplate the, the mystery, the, the confounding and poetic container that you, the God of the universe, would take upon the sins and burdens of the world. Might that great act of sacrifice charm us, captivate us, and then transform us so that we can never see the glory of the world the same way again and so that we can never look away from the glory of Jesus ever again. Help us now to celebrate that. Help us to take this language from the very heart of King David and the great King Jesus. Let, it, let us cause us to revel in what he has paid for us. 
Let it cause us to celebrate and and to commemorate and, and sing in inexpressible ways, maybe incoherent ways, groanings in the depths of our heart for what Jesus has done for us. Now we respond in praise in Jesus' name. Amen.